The following is a presentation made at the 2022 Transcending the Israel Lobby at Home and Abroad Conference held on March 4 at the National Press Club. Uh, Don Wagner is a recently retired, the recently retired director of Friends of Seville North America. Prior to that, he was a professor of Middle East Studies at North Park University, where he was also the director of its Center for Middle Eastern Studies. He was also a former director of the Palestine Human Rights Campaign. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister who has served churches in New Jersey and Evanston, Illinois. He's the co-author of five books, and he has one coming out called Glory to God in the Lowest, Journeys to an Unholy Land, which you can pre-order today. We have QR codes you can scan over near the bookstore. He will be discussing the widespread influence of Christian Zionism and growing backlash inside American churches. We discussed this topic one other time at a conference with Thomas Getman, and it's one of our most popular YouTube videos. And I'm sure Don is uh, worthy to follow that, yeah. that talk. So welcome, Don. Thank you, Dale. Well, thank you, Dale. Thank you for the whole staff and all of you. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of ready for a power nap after everything that we've heard and taken in. But thankfully, we just had Huweda before me, and Huweda's energy, my God, Huweda, I just hope and pray that you will be elected to represent us. We who have been in this for a long time really stand on your shoulders in the next generation that's coming. So more power to you, and you give power and inspiration to all of us. Thank you. Well, now for something completely different as Monty Python used to say, the uh, Christian Zionism. This will be uh, a little bit different from what we've been doing, and uh, here it goes. I've got a PowerPoint, and uh, I decided last night in the wee hours, eh, I got a pretty dry, boring paper, so I'm just going to excerpt from it here and there and tell a few stories. So it'll be completely different, and I figure you can read the uh, manuscript if you think it's worth it whenever it comes out. Let me begin with a little vignette I got from our friend Mary Nesnik about two hours ago. She follows the Christian Zionism issue, and uh, I hadn't seen this because I haven't been following the news. But Wednesday, March 2nd, Pat Robertson, a unbelievable Christian Zionist, made another prediction. He said, God is using Putin to prepare the way for Armageddon, the final battle when the forces of the Antichrist, maybe he's alluding to Putin's the Antichrist, I don't know, will come and attack Israel to bring on the second coming of Jesus in the final battle of history. I grew up with that. Seriously. As a young kid, that's what my mom believed to her Dying day at the age of 95. Say, Don, why are you working on justice for Palestine? It's not going to happen. They've been fighting since Cain and Abel. And it'll never end until Jesus returns. So there's a little summary of Christian Zionism that I had passed down. I pulled out of that when I was about 13. I just couldn't understand the violence and the dual narrative of violence that it supported. And I had a little bit of insight and left it. But then when I went to seminary, 
I got another type of Christian Zionism, one that's rarely discussed that I want to go to in a few minutes, mainline liberal Protestant and Catholic Christian Zionism, a post-Holocaust version that elevates Israel as an exceptional power that we must support as God's agent. And it was an answer to the Holocaust, which we can all believe and agree to. But now it elevates Israel and creates an exceptionalism. And I call it the Christian Zionism hiding in plain sight in our churches and in the Democratic Party. And it's that kind of a Christian Zionism that forces progressives to be good on every issue except this, Palestine. Our friend uh, and Jewish liberation theologian Mark Ellis called it the ecumenical deal. Let's have dialogue and wonderful dinners. We'll get together and work on racism and every other, other issue. But check Palestine at the door. It's complicated. Leave that to us. You Christians shouldn't be involved in it because we are on the front lines. That's the other Christian Zionism. So let me raise some of these questions. Uh, as I move along. So I guess that's up there. That, I want to go back a little bit, Grant, in the outline. This is what I might do. Uh, i got to watch the time because I haven't timed this, and I may just jettison part of this. But I want to start with uh, a little bit of a historical overview, uh, historical context on the rise of two Zionisms. And then we'll move to the other issues. Now, I used to give my students when I was teaching the Israel-Palestine, and I don't use the word conflict anymore because it assumes parity. I use struggle. It's a political struggle. So you might think about this. The first day of classes, I would give them this exercise. Where, when, and why did the Palestine-Israel struggle begin? Now, what would you say? Where does it begin? Ah, that's better. The students would often start with 67, the 67 war. But if you start there, and some textbooks do, you don't get what happened in the Nakba. You don't miss the genocide of 48 and 49. You miss it. Or you go back a little further to Belfort Declaration. A lot of students would say that. That's closer. But I go back earlier. For me, and i got experts in here, so you've got better opinions than I on this probably, but I said the struggle begins not in Palestine, where Muslims, Jews, and Christians basically were living together in peace up until the British mandate and the influx of Zionism and settlers. It begins in Europe. It begins in the 1840 to 1900 period when lethal history of mostly Christian anti-Semitism was filling Eastern Europe and Russian and Ukrainian cities with pogroms. That's where it begins. And that's when Jewish leaders began to articulate the need for a homeland because we'll never be safe in Europe. The great Jewish physician of uh, Odessa, which now is under fire, uh, Dr. Pinsker, 
was an assimilationist, as most Jews in Europe were. And he decided, no, we've got to fit in. We've got to, and we, he was a leader of that movement in Odessa. And then his house was attacked and burned by violent Christian mobs of pogrom. And he realized overnight, no longer can we be secure. And as a physician, he used the analysis Judeophobia. It was a medical analysis of a condition of hatred and fear of the Jews. Thus, the attacks and blaming the Jews. So, he was what uh, the great uh, Dr. Hertzberg calls a precursor. He prepared the way for the Zionist movement. He wasn't actually an articulator of a political plan, but he called for a homeland. So he prepared the way for Herzl and others. Now at the same time, as Herzl comes and begins official Zionism, in 1897 with the World Zionist Congress, that's the official launch of the political ideology Zionism, Christian Zionism had been percolating for 400 years, mostly in Europe. And I'm using now his analysis to apply to Christian Zionism. When I did my earlier research and writing, I figured that all these early speakers who were calling for support for the Jews and the homeland were Christian Zionists. I've decided to change that. So now I would say that these early forerunners, like John Nelson Darby, Lord Shaftesbury, and many others, they are precursors because their movements were religious on behalf of the Jews, calling for some kind of a homeland, a solution. But they did not have a political plan until about 1888. Along came uh, Reverend Heckler. Funny name. I. <laughs> it sounds kind of weird, for, but... Uh, Reverend Heckler was an old Christian Zionist, and he was the chaplain to the British Army in Vienna. And Heckler had been dreaming and hoping for a Jewish movement to come along and save the Jewish people. His origins was he was a restorationist. He believed that the Christian duty was to convert the Jews and encourage them to move to Palestine or somewhere to hasten the return of Jesus. He kind of switched overnight when he met Herzl in Vienna. And he saw him as a great prophet. And Heckler became active in political Zionism the rest of his life. He became a very close friend of Herzl. He arranged for meetings with the German Kaiser or Herzl asked for land in Palestine. He arranged for a meeting with the Ottoman leadership. They all rejected and, t- and turned him down. But Herzl valued that friendship. And Heckler was one of the only Gentiles with the family on Herzl's deathbed. And Herzl told them, you are the father of Christian Zionism. This was before the Zionist movement. 
So, Heckler is one. The other one, who was kind of a precursor, turned into a Christian Zionist, is a guy from my home area, Chicago, William E. Blackstone. Blackstone was kind of an end-time theology guy. He believed in the rapture like Pat Robertson, that at the end, Israel would come under fire from the Antichrist and its hordes coming down from the north. Now, conveniently, born-again Christians would be removed by anybody know what that's called? The rapture. I bought into that for a while. So it's so convenient for born-again Christians, they won't go through the final battle and all the hassles. So overnight, Blackstone believed this isn't enough. He organized the first Zionist lobby in 1891. A petition drive from coast to coast. It was financed by John D. Rockefeller, Charles Scribner, the publisher, J.P. Morgan. He had about a dozen or more U.S. congressmen and senators and the chief justice of the Supreme Court on the petition, appealing to the president, Harrison at that time, create a Jewish state in Palestine because of the pogroms and the suffering of Jews in Europe. That, before Herzl had the first World Zionist Congress, the Christian Zionists had a lobby in 1891. That is the beginning of Christian Zionism. So I define Christian Zionism as a political movement calling for support for Israel, guaranteed by foreign powers, because God gave all of the land to the Jewish people. Christians must, therefore, provide religious and spiritual, economic and political support. And this is the basis of fundamentalist Christian Zionism. Most of the fundamentalists call themselves evangelicals. Evangelicalism is a movement of over about 110 million Christians in the United States. Many evangelicals reject Christian Zionism. So this is in the fundamentalist right wing of the movement. So that's why it's important to use fundamentalism. Almost all the secular and religious media calls them all evangelicals. This kind of plays into their favor because they can say, oh, we represent 100 million, 110 million Christians. No. You might represent at best about 18 million. That's a lot. So the movement of Reverend John Hagee of Christian Zionism, Christians United for Israel, has now become more numerically powerful than the pro-Israel Jewish lobby, APEC and the others. And they have worked hand in glove together David Bragg, who came right out of APEC, was the director of Christians United for Israel and did all the hard wiring of the movement with the pro-Israel lobby for years. He has just declared he's going to run for the Senate in Nevada. So they got new people. But Hagee's movement and other Christian Zionist movement is what really was used by the Trump administration and quietly by Netanyahu 
to push for the move of the embassy and basically annexation of Jerusalem and Golan Heights. They lobbied heavily and pushed that through. And Trump admitted it himself when he was uh, in Wisconsin fundraising uh, in his election campaign. We did it for the evangelicals, better fundamentalists. So that's an admission of how that played out. Now, let me uh, use a little bit of judicial focus here. And as I go into more of a critique of Zionism, Christian Zionism, I try to follow what Alain Pape recommended, that we need to be very precise and careful with our language. I'm not here criticizing the Jewish religion, the Jewish people. And Pape said, denying Israel's existence is impossible and unrealistic. However, evaluating Israel ethically, morally, and politically is not only possible, but at present it is urgent as never before. We've been a little too soft, particularly in the Christian quarters, on our critique of Christian Zionism. We're fearful of criticizing Zionism itself. Times are changing, and denominations are really beginning to step up and see the difference. So let me move now to part three. I'm jettisoning stuff. And um, I want to talk a little bit about liberal mainline Christian Zionism. As I said, when I was in seminary at Princeton, I was politicized. I came from a conservative Republican family, a fundamentalist Zionist background, even though I had left some of that. The views lingered. So I went into Holocaust studies a great deal. Excuse me, I gotta get some water. That little dry throat syndrome coming on. So, as I was working on post Holocaust theology and was really standing with the Jewish people against anti Semitism and still will, we must do that. I, however, caught this elevation of Israel as kind of God's chosen people in a different way. There's a fellow I was reading called Reinhold Niebuhr, great liberal theologian. President Obama said he is my favorite ethical theologian and philosopher. Niebuhr led a lobby. He organized a lobby during World War II that lobbied for the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. It was very successful, putting pressure on the Truman administration. Niebuhr, however, had a blind spot. Another progressive who was good on every issue, on race, human rights, everything else. But when it came to Palestine, it was really a blank tablet. He was told when he was lobbying that there's a genocide going on in Palestine with the Israeli militias and the new army annihilating Palestinians and forcing them to leave. What Niebuhr said is this will be necessary for Israel to become a state. 
He excused it. That's how far he went in his blindness to Palestinian justice. Now, many of our liberal congressmen and senators, maybe even the president, have been influenced by that liberal kind of post-Holocaust theology that places Israel above the norms of international law and standards. So this is a liberal Christian Zionism, I say, hiding in plain sight. It's in our culture. It runs deep. The city on the hill that we are blessed as a nation to bless Israel and elevate Israel. So this, however, is beginning to change. And let me, let me shift a little bit to that. As I've changed my analysis, I've turned to two sources of critique in the past five years that I didn't have before. One is settler colonial analysis, and the second is liberation theology. My paper will deal with the liberation theology. Let me just mention a few things about settler colonialism. and Most of you are probably familiar with this. Traditional colonialism basically will come as the British did in India, even when they did in the, uh, in the United States, and occupy, take the resources, control, abuse the population. But they generally leave. They're either forced out, or they become bankrupt and they exit. Settler colonialism is different. Settler colonialism comes and the occupier stays. Their end game, their goal, is to replace the indigenous population with their own settlers. And this is what the United States eventually turned to become, a settler colonial regime. And look what we've done to our indigenous population. It's criminal. This is what Israel now has done. Now, there are several different types of Zionism. When I taught this, I identified six. But the revisionist form of Zionism, the more militant, is modeled after a settler colonial ideology. And this is a Zionism of the Begins, Netanyahu's, and now the Bennett, Lapid, Lieberman and the rest. And it's also merged with an even more militant messianic type of Zionism. Where they believe the land has been given to them by God. They can no longer argue on international law for them to have a right to the land. So they pull out the divine argument. And it is a replace and displace movement using any means necessary. Just look at the Nakba. What's going on now is a slow genocide of settler colonialism in Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, across the West Bank. Uh, Tent of Nations, a wonderful project that many of us support, is constantly threatened to lose their land, even though they have the deed going back, to, I think, to 1914. The settlers and the government of Israel want that hundred acres of property high on a hill. So settler colonialism is designed to replace and displace. Patrick Wolfe, an Australian, was the one who pushed this issue and said settler colonialism should be a separate and identifiable field of study, and now it is. 
And here's how he summarized it as applied to Israel. Settler colonialism destroys to replace. As Theodore Herzl, founding father of Zionism, observed in this allegorical manifesto novel, listen to this quote. If I wish to to substitute a new building for an old one, I must demolish before I construct. I must demolish the people and what was there in Palestine before I construct the new Jewish state. That's the ideology in a nutshell. Now let me turn to the final part. When I was a pastor in a black church where I really uh, was groomed in many ways to deal with my own racism and justice, uh, I remember I had to do my first sermon. I was scared to hell. I, and I, an old elder came up to me before the, uh, the sermon, and he said, Hey, Don, listen, young man. If you preach and go over 25 minutes, there's a trap door under you, and I've got the button. <laughs> You're just going to disappear when I hit that button, so stay on time. So I'm trying, and Grant will warn me. In the fall of 2019, after a 100 years of Zionist settler colonization, attempts to kill, occupy, murder the Palestinians, Palestinians were still over 50% of the population in historic Palestine. And if you add the refugees, much more. However, the Christian population has shrunk. In 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Golan, the Christians in the West Bank were 13%. Do you know what they are today? It slipped under 1%. And they're disappearing, not because of militant Islam, as Israel and the Christian Zionists would have us believe. It's the occupation, the brutality, the settler colonialism that's destroying their lives and their future. So in July 2020, a group of Christians met in Jerusalem as Netanyahu was about to issue the annexation executive order of all of the West Bank until he got significant pushback from Europe and held back. As Sheikh Jarrah was losing homes, Silwan the same, a group of Christian leaders met and they issued what's called a cry for hope. They said, it's beyond urgent. And it was a cry to the global, not just churches, but the global progressive Jewish and Muslim community. Come and stand with us. Accelerate your work. It isn't enough just to pass resolutions. We need action and aggressive action now. So here are some of the things that they, that they focused on. And I'll just mention these. And this went out globally to the, to the churches around the world. Six types of action. Urgent resolutions, interdenominations, calling for legislative action, organizing, boycotts, and the rest. 
Number two, theological analysis and the misuse of the Bible of our oppression. Pastor Mitri Raheb said, and I had it in the quote at the beginning, we in Palestine are occupied by the Israeli military and by the Bible. How the Bible is abused and misused to force another people into suffrage. Ah, the yellow light. Three, solidarity with Palestinians. Letting us set the agenda and listening and standing with us and what we need now. And using all the tools of nonviolent action, especially BDS. This is a call. <laughs> this is a call from the churches. As a Presbyterian, we worked for 10 years to get BDS passed. And finally in 2014, after strong pressure and occupation, we passed it in Detroit. Jewish Voice for Peace, American Muslims for Palestine were standing with us to celebrate. Now, several other denominations are doing that. So BDS, but it now has to also move to sanctions, as it did in South Africa. Where am I? Number four. I can't find it. Well, I remember some. Uh, Stand against anti-Semitism. We don't have it up there. Uh, stand with Jews and fight anti-Semitism at all costs, at all times. We must do that to be consistent. And while I'm on this one, did you notice how anti-Semitic Christian Zionism is? One model, the restorationists say, let's convert the Jews and move them to Palestine. Because we don't want them living in our neighborhood. The other one, let's also convert the Jews and give them a state or a homeland. This was Darby and Blackstone and the rest. But let's move them there. Lord Belfour, who was a Zionist Christian, he opposed the Jewish immigration bill in the parliament. And I think it was 1901. Because he didn't want Jews in his neighborhood. But we'll send them to Palestine. So these movements are inherently racist and anti-Semitic. So we need to stand against anti-Semitism in all forms. And I'm missing one, but come and see. Come and stand with us. See the real situation on the ground, and then go home and go to work and get busy. Now, in addition to these, and by the way, several denominations are now working very hard since July of 2020 to push new resolutions. The United Church of Christ had one of the strongest last year. And now the Episcopal Church is following. It's go and do likewise. And we Presbyterians now have to catch up with the others. Now quickly, let me just mention, I won't be able to develop it. Here are three others. Declare Christian Zionism a heresy. It is a heresy takes a portion of the truth, turns it upside down and empties it, and then fills it with racist, anti-biblical content. 
So this is what Christian Zionism and Zionism are. They are ideologies that are idolatrous of the state of Israel. Absolutely idolatrous. And that is the first commandment. They also are racist. And we need to call them to account of the lack of humanity and accountability. That we are all equal before God. Imago Dei. So, and there's a term called status confessionis. It's a theological term. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer used this idea when he was critiquing, as a German, under Nazi, Nazism, that national socialist ideology that the German church had adopted is racist and out of our confessional tradition and must be rejected. The South African Christians saw this and applied it to apartheid. The World Alliance of Reformed Churches had their international meeting in Ottawa, Canada in 1984, I think it was, Tom. And Alan Buzak and some of the ministers walked out when communion was served saying, we can't take communion in white churches in South Africa, so we're not going to take it here until you change and declare apartheid a heresy. We need to do the same thing now on Christian Zionism. It is a heresy, an abomination to the Christian message of Jesus. Number two, we need help on this. We need to work to close the tax loopholes that Zionist and Christian Zionist organizations have. Kufi, Christians United for Israel, is raising money for settlements. The international, what is that? The International Fellowship of Christians and Jews raises money from Christian evangelicals primarily and annually gives a million to two million dollars to the friends of the Israeli Defense Forces and is working on settlements. All tax-exempt money exploiting the IRS. This needs legislative action. It will be long and hard, but it has to be done. A great film, by the way, Till Kingdom Come, done by an Israeli filmmaker, Maya Zinstein. It was scheduled to air, and we had it in our Chicago paper on PBS a few months ago. At the last minute, it was pulled and never aired. And one of the things it does, it shows the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews handing a check over to the IDF for a million dollars. So it's clear. There's the evidence. Next, decolonize Palestine. Decolonize Palestine through a global grassroots advocacy work. And it's coming up. It's emerging with Black Lives Matter, American Muslims for Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, and many others. A solidarity movement is coming up at the grassroots. We can't access power at the top of the level with Biden, Blinken, and the boys. But the grassroots movement, if we get mobilized, elect more people like Hawaii and put pressure on the rest of the Democrats and Republicans to change their policies on Palestine, the grassroots is our hope. Our hope is the next generation, and it's rising, it's coming. 
Well, let me close with this. My time is up. So advocacy, hard work is really going to be the key. Organizing. Let me close with this quote from my friend Mark Braverman, a great theologian and Jewish writer, talking about Zionism and our need to critique it and Christian Zionism. He writes, We must acknowledge that Zionism was a mistake. And I would add, and Christian Zionism. An understandable but catastrophic wrong term in our quest for safety and dignity. Until then, until we reject it, we will continue to build a state on top of a lie and a crime. Until then, Palestinians will continue to resist by steadfastly refusing to relinquish their identity, their way of life, their connection to their homeland. Occupied, harassed, imprisoned, blockaded, bombarded, starved, betrayed by their political leaders, but proud, unbowed, refusing to disappear. Jews must recognize, and Christians, that our stories today are not what was done to us, but what we will now do for justice for the sake of others. Let's rise to be part of this new wave of change to transform Palestine from the occupation and Israel from settler colonialism. It's something we all have a stake in and must do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that uh, enlightening and also impassioned speech. Um, just once again, a reminder, his book you see on the screen, you can be pre-ordered here today. There's QR codes over in the bookstore. Uh, if that speech isn't going to make you want to buy it, I don't know what will. So, Don, I think uh, before we get some questions from the audience and make sure you get those uh, flowing in, I guess I'll just start with a question. If you could just maybe talk a little bit more about your own path out of Christian Zionism and kind of what that means for how other people can help lead people out of uh, that train of thinking. Yeah. Well, that's what the story of that book is. It was my pandemic project. Couldn't go anywhere, so Lynn and I just hunkered down, and uh, I wrote a book. And uh, hopefully it'll be out by the end of April. It's my story out of two Christian Zionisms where I was shaped by my family to buy into this end-time theology as a kid. And uh, after a while, it just didn't make sense, and I was able to think a little bit more critically. But these Christian Zionisms are a worldview. It gives you a narrative to interpret the world. It's fear-based. It's not love-based. It's not love your neighbor as yourself. It's a fear-based narrative. And uh, after a while, I just couldn't stomach it anymore. And I was about 13 when I asked a pastor, I don't understand why in the book of Joshua they virtually commit genocide against the original inhabitants. Isn't that in direct conflict with the Hebrew prophets and Jesus? And his words to me were basically said, just accept the Bible as it's written. Ha! 
I said, I can't accept this. This is not the word of God. So then the post-Holocaust version was a little bit more difficult because it's more subtle and it, and with the whole issue of anti-Semitism and connecting it with Israel, it was more difficult for me. Um, and the way that breakthrough came, I, I mentioned it briefly last night, I had moved down to my last church in Evanston, Illinois. I was the youngest guy on the staff in a big downtown church. And we did a series on the Middle East conflict. Uh, then we call it conflict, now struggle, of course. And uh, I was very much wedded to the Zionist narrative. And uh, we decided in the course that we'll divide it. Uh, we'll have bring in a speaker on Zionism and the defense of Israel. And then we'll have a speaker on the pro-Palestine issue. So I brought in the Council General of Chicago. He gave a passionate defense for Israel. I was thrilled. Good job. My partner, who was organizing it, happened to be a layman who was a fundraiser at Northwestern University. And he went and settled Palestinians in 49 and 50 in tents with the United Nations. So he brought in Dr. Ibrahim Abulugot who was, uh, at that time, chair of political science at Northwestern University. And that was the first time I heard the story of the Nakba by someone who went through it, who lost their home, forced out of Jaffa, and settled in tents in Ramallah. And it jarred my narrative. It opened it a little bit, not completely, and then I went to the office the next morning, and my phone rang, and it was uh, it was a Jewish leader from Skokie, which was right next door to Evanston, saying, "You have brought in Abu Lugod. He is a member of the PLO, a friend of Arafat, and a terrorist. You are dignifying terrorism. If this series is not canceled, we're going to march on your church during the Sunday morning service." I'd only been there two weeks, so I'll go down and tell my boss, the senior pastor, about this. He said, geez, Wagner, you've only been here two weeks, and we got big problems already. <laughs> but <laughs> it was hot air. Nothing happened. I began then, once my narrative was jarred, to study. Met with Dr. Abulugo and other Palestinians. And long story short, gradually... Not only was my narrative changed, I went and saw it for a month firsthand and came back and felt, I want to go to work on this cause full time. And I did. So. Well, we have five minutes left for questions. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three questions and you can address them as you see fit. Okay. One is uh, what biblical scripture can be used to respond to Christian Zionism. Someone would like you to elaborate a little bit more on the history of Christians within Palestine. And finally, this one's interesting. It says uh, David Brog is the co-founder of what is being called National Conservatism, which is apparently, according to the questioner, being heavily promoted by the American Conservative magazine, which has in the past been somewhat, at least willingness, you know, 
open to Palestine. Are you aware of this new front, and can you comment on it? Yeah. So the first one again, I might have to... Sure. The first one, I believe, was what biblical scripture can ah. be used to respond to Christian Zionism. Okay. Um, well, first, I'd recommend that you get um, Walter Brueggemann's book, Chosen, with a question mark, or anything by Gary Burge, Dr. Gary Burge. Gary is an evangelical, used to teach at Wheaton, and he is a biblical scholar, so he's analyzed all these texts. So I'll just say a couple things. Israel in the Bible is conflated with the modern state, and they ain't the same, folks. There are four references to who Israel is in the Bible, and none of them talk about an independent Jewish state in the future. So that's one thing. Second, the narrative of the scriptures is about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's based on fundamental equality. There are numerous texts, starting with the creation story of the Imago Dei, and the prophets are fabulous on this, calling Israel's leadership, ancient Israel and Judah, to not exploit the poor, nurture and be careful for the sojourners who are in your midst to treat them equally not even to exploit the environment and the land. So right in those traditions are strong mandates. Or just look at Matthew 25, where Jesus has a parable about the sheep and the goats. When Jesus, or God, judges us at the end of time, remember? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? Even though you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. So that's my text for glory to God in the lowest. We are called to be in solidarity with the poor, the oppressed, the hurting. Not to elevate a state as a tribal state above others with military solutions, but we're to be in the trenches with those who are suffering, struggling, and right now it's the Palestinians. And to call for Jewish progressives and Muslims so we work together. And to fight racism, because it's a very racist project. Okay, next question. So I think we are unfortunately out of time as it's now 2 o'clock. Um, but if you have any more questions, Don will be here, and you could yep. snatch him up on the sidelines. And with that, uh, we're going to transition to Gideon Levy's keynote. Okay, thank you. Thank you.